0: So, 1 Timothy um, is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, um, an easy strategy is to turn all the way to the end in the book of Revelation and then just start working your way leftward. Um, you'll pretty quickly hit 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Keep going. 1st and 2nd Peter, keep going. James, Hebrews, you're almost there. Titus, 2nd Timothy. 1st Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to be. No surprise, we're going to start at the start, the first two verses, um, but kind of different. We're also going to look at the very middle of the book, chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, but also chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, does something unique in those few verses right in the middle in chapter 3. He tells us exactly why he's writing this letter. Um, so for obvious re- reasons, we're starting at the start, um, but because he so clearly uh, tells us his main purpose for writing the entire letter, we're going to look at those verses to begin with, and then we'll be able to see the rest of the book in light of his stated purpose. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. So the Apostle Paul, if you haven't heard of him, he is one of the 13, 13, 13, 13, original disciples, one of the 13 OG disciples. He was not amongst the original 12, Peter, James, John, and the rest. Um, He was uh, an apostle who was untimely born, is what he called himself uh, in one of his letters to the Corinthians. He was the 13th apostle. And what he meant was, is that he didn't Uh, become an apostle. He didn't become a Christian until well after uh, the movement of Christianity had begun. So Jesus had died, risen, and ascended to heaven. And then years later is when the apostle Paul became a Christian and then eventually became an apostle. Why did Jesus do this with Peter? Why did he, I'm sorry, with Paul? Why did Jesus set Paul up like this? Well, I think it's because he wanted to make an example of Paul. Um, Because, you see, Paul was a Jew's Jew. He was incredibly religious and zealous at following the uh, the Jewish religion and the Mosaic Code, the Law of Moses. Um, He was really, really good at it. Um, But Jesus confronts Paul and convinces him that he is just as much in need as the grace of Christ as the nastiest sinner. So the apostle Paul becomes a Christian, and then, again, kind of an irony, even though he's a Jew's Jew, Jesus sends him out on a mission to the Gentiles. He for sure makes it as far as Rome, where all those pagans are, and then maybe, uh, we think, got as far as Spain. So he was sent on a special mission to take the gospel beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, along the way, as the apostle is on his missionary journeys, he's planting different churches. He also had a missionary team. And amongst this missionary team was a man named Timothy, who was younger than Paul, became a Christian a little later than Paul did. Paul discipled Timothy um, and brought him onto his missionary team. And then Timothy would stay at different uh, one of Paul's church plants in order to provide further leadership, because Paul couldn't be at all of his churches at once. And so he would have what sometimes scholars refer to as apostolic delegates that he would leave behind or send to one of his church plants. So Timothy wasn't a pastor in the same way that I or Jonathan or Eric are one of the pastors here who live and stay amongst the church. He was more of an apostolic delegate that Paul would send around to his different churches and give assignments to. Well, his assignment at this point, when the letter's written, is to the church in Ephesus. And Paul is going to say that he's writing to Timothy to provide further instruction on how he is to lead the church and how the church is to order itself. So let's read these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In March of 2021, Gallup Research and Polling Organization, they published a report that revealed for the first time in American history, a majority of Americans do not belong to a house of worship. For the first time in American history, they found out a majority of Americans do not belong to a house of worship. The article is entitled, U.S. Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time, and the report presented data that only 49% of American adults belong to a church. Gallup has been uh, reporting this data as far back as 1937, and for the first six decades, from the 30s to the 90s, this number hovered around 70% of Americans who reported attending a church. But over the past two decades, there has been a dramatic decline. And this number is even more startling when you isolate specific generational segments specifically millennials, those of us who were born in the 80s and 90s, of that generation, only 36% are actively participating or belong to a local church. So 49% nationally, 36% amongst millennials. So it seems that an entire nation is asking itself about the church, why bother? Why bother with the church Maybe you know someone who is asking that question. Maybe you yourself are asking that question. And if that's true about you, I want to say that it is okay to honestly ask that question. And I'm glad that you're still here to wrestle through this with us. And I want to say that you're not alone. Many of us here who are leaders and committed members, we ourselves have gone through our own season of disenchantment and even distance from the church. I recall for myself my freshman year of university, my first time away from home. I wasn't a Christian yet at that point in my life, but I did grow up going to church regularly, mostly weekly. But as soon as I got to school, as soon as I got away from home, never went to church. Didn't think twice about it. Who cares? Why bother? So over the next several weeks, we want to help those who find themselves discouraged in their relationship with church. We want to help you come to acknowledge the blessing and the necessity of the local church. And as always, again, we look to the scriptures to answer the questions of our heart. And in this case, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And today, as we work through this set of verses, we're asking ourselves simply, what is the church? And what does it do? So just zooming out, big picture, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. I mean, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of church life throughout the rest of this series. But this morning, we're zooming out, 30,000-foot view, what is the church and what does it do? So first, what is the church? Well, if you think narrowly about the specific word church in the New Testament, it's translating the Greek word ekklesia. And this Greek term specifically, simply, literally refers to an assembly, refers to a gathering of people. And it could be any kind of assembly. For example, an assembly gathered to incite a riot. This actually happens in Acts chapter 19. There's a group of Ephesian citizens, and they are gathered to riot in the streets. And Luke, the author of Acts, refers to them as an ecclesia. church, if you will. Because most narrowly, most simply, that's all a church is. It's a group of people who are assembled, who are gathered. Well, when the early Christians became Christians, they started assembling a lot and regularly, so much so that the name stuck, ecclesia, assembly, the church. But because most basically, that's what a church is. It's a group of people who gather, And so this question is worth asking yourself, especially if you are a believer in Jesus. To what extent can you say that you are a part of a church if you are not regularly, publicly gathering, assembling with fellow believers? Let me ask that again. To what extent can you say that you are a part of a church if you are not regularly, publicly gathering with fellow believers, because that's what a church is. It's an assembly, it's a gathering. So if you are only assembling on Christmas and Easter, if you are only gathering sporadically, if you are only gathering when it's convenient for you, then I dare say you are not a part of a church. And I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad. I myself have gone through those seasons. I'm saying it for the sake of honesty. A church most simply is an assembly, and if you are not regularly assembling, then you are not a part of the assembly. Pretty straightforward, pretty obvious. We can draw an analogy from sports. We all here are Detroit Lions fans, right? Got a game tonight, prime time, playoffs on the line. But we're all Lions fans, right? No. There's some backsliders amongst you, some apostates who have fallen away. Well, let me ask a very similar question to those of you who do consider yourselves a Lions fan. To what extent can you say that you are a Lions fan if you are not regularly gathering with other Lions fans at Ford Field or around your television set to support the team? Like if you disregard the schedule, if you avoid the watch parties, if you barely assemble for the sake of the Lions, then to what extent are you a Lions fan? It's hard to say. And the same is true with the church. If we're not regularly gathering with the church, then to what degree are we a part of a church? Because that's what the church is. It's what the word literally means, a gathering and assembly. And this is why within our membership covenant, the first commitment listed is that we will submit ourselves as members to regularly gathering for worship that we will, as members of Woodside, collectively gather to worship together. We do it every Sunday, 9 a.m. and 11. We're doing it right now. We are churching as we speak because we're assembled. But as straightforward as that is, based off this specific term, ekklesia, that's not as much exactly the focus of what Paul says here in these verses. Listen again to what he says in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So you see here, Paul uses the word church, but he refers to the church as the household of God. So this is familial language, right? If the church is the house of God, then the church is where God dwells, and it is where God's family members dwell. So by calling the church the household of God, Paul is saying here that there's something deeper than the fact that we are all simply gathered in the same room. Yes, we need to be gathered in the same room, but you can be gathered in the same room with your co-workers with a local civic club, with any other number of assemblies. But that doesn't mean that you're family. But it does mean that for the assembly that is the church, which is also called the household of God. In Matthew chapter 12, there's this short four-verse snippet that Matthew shares from Jesus' life. Jesus is apparently in someone's home teaching a group of people, and Matthew writes this. He says, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside the house asking to speak to Jesus. But Jesus replied to the man who told him that his mother's, mother and brother were outside. Jesus replied to him, who is, my bro- who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, Jesus said, here here are my brothers and my mother. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So you see here in this scene, Jesus is redefining family. He says, my family are those who obey my heavenly father. My family are those who live out the kingdom of heaven on earth. It almost makes me wanna say here like, Jesus, dude, you're being a punk to your mom, man. Like, come on, she just wants to come in and hear you and see you. But he says, my family is here. My family are those who follow me in obedience to the Father. I bring this scene up to say that Paul didn't come up with the idea that the church is the household of God. Jesus did. Jesus redefines family. He and Paul teach us that the church is more than just showing up on Sunday, though it is not less than that. But it is more than that. What is the church? It is spiritual family. It is a gathering, but it is a family gathering. Jesus says, These are my brothers and sisters and mothers. Paul says, This is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And you think back to verses one and two, Paul's opening words to start the letter that we read. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, an apostle by command of God our Savior and Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. So again, this familial language. He says that Timothy is his true child in the faith. Yes, Paul identifies himself as an apostle, Yes, he says that he is writing as one authorized by Christ himself. So there definitely is a strong note of authority in that first verse. But then in the very next verse, he shifts from being authoritative to tender. An apostle writing to my true child in the faith. So this is Paul not just saying that the church is family in theory, No, the church is family in reality. The church is family in relationship. My true child in the faith is Timothy to Paul. So I wanna ask you, especially if you've been a part of Woodside Royal Oak for some amount of time, do you have these kinds of familial relationships within the church? Young men, young women, Do you have a spiritual father or fathers like Paul is to Timothy? An older man who encourages you, who challenges you, who, like Paul does to Timothy, speaks blessing into his life. Paul writes to his child in the faith and says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. That's my heart for you as your father in the faith. Do you have somebody like that here? Or, like Jesus said he had, do you have a spiritual mother or mothers, an older lady in the faith who knows you, who loves you, who listens to you, who prays for you, who sets an example for you in the faith? And to my older brothers and sisters, are you stepping into the lives of younger of those younger than you so that you can be that kind of person for them, like Paul was to Timothy? And to all of us, whether young or old, do you have peers Do you have those with whom you share a spiritual friendship? Those with whom you can truly say are your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, if the answer to any or all of those questions is no, if the answer to any or all of those questions are no, then you are not experiencing the church as God intends you to. What is the church? It is a spiritual family. God wants you to receive the wisdom and love of the older men in our church. God wants you to witness the grace and strength of the older ladies in our church. God wants you to feel connected with friends in Christ, with peers, brothers and sisters in this church. These relationships take time to create And they are often messy in the process, but they are necessary. And they are a great blessing. And the primary way that we want to help you step into these kinds of relationships is through what we call life groups that Lauren mentioned earlier. On Sunday mornings, we have our large corporate public worship assembly. And then throughout the week in people's homes, we have much smaller, much more personal groups that we call life groups, where you can get connected, really in spiritual family, in intimate relationships that are centered on Jesus and following him together. We'd love to help you get connected. So what is the church? We are a spiritual family. Secondly, what does the church do? What does the church do? There's again, many things we could say in relation to this question, but let's see how Paul answers that question here in these verses, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 14 through 16, again. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So there's the two things that Paul says the church does. He says we ought to behave Or we ought to conduct ourselves in a certain way as the household of God. That's verse 15. Then secondly, he says, we confess. We confess the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness just being a certain way to refer to Christian revelation that which was hidden is now revealed in the gospel of Jesus. So those are the two things we do. We conduct ourselves in a certain way and we confess the truth of the gospel, or as you see it in your notes, we model and confess the truth. And the one is related to the other. It's only as we conduct ourselves in a certain way, it's only as we order ourselves appropriately in the household of God that we are then able to confess the truth of the gospel faithfully and effectively. So throughout this letter, the apostle is going to give direction for the church, for how we are to engage false teachers, for how men are to repent of their anger, for how women are to be wary of materialism and vanity, for how leaders are to be vetted, for how widows are to be cared, for how the rich are to be humbled. All these different instructions help bring stable order and right conduct within the house of God. And when that happens, we are then able to be the pillar and buttress of truth, the proclaimers of the gospel that God is calling us to be. I wonder if any of you have heard this line before. When you were a child, maybe, or maybe when you were a grown child, even, visiting your grandparents' house, maybe, and you said something, or you did something that was out of line as far as your grandma was concerned, and then to rebuke you, your grandmother said something like, we don't act like that in this house. We don't talk like that in this family. Now, that's interesting, right? (laughs) She invokes your presence in her home, and she draws on your membership in the family, and she says, no way you ought to know how one conducts himself in the household of Eldridge or whatever. Well, Paul here is saying something not too dissimilar. You know, our families are not a free-for-all, right? At least most of the time when our kids get older, right? I hope, maybe. They're not just a free-for-all. Our households are not places where everybody just does whatever they want to do. No, there's some structure There's some leadership, there's commitments, there's accountability. That's the way it is for our households, and that's the way it is for God's household. That is the church. What does the church do? We conduct ourselves in a certain way. We model the truth we believe through our behavior and through our structure. And then again, secondly, we confess the truth we believe. We proclaim and spread the gospel together. And the way Paul puts it is through this building imagery. He says, we as a church, when we're conducting ourselves rightly, when we're ordered biblically, then we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress being these instruments of construction that hold something up. So I'm sure most of us are familiar with a pillar. It's essentially just a pole that holds up a roof or holds up an overhang of some time. We've got several of these in the basement of our house that we use to swing around as we're chasing one another, but they are truly pillars holding up supporting our house. Those essentially are pillars. Buttresses I was less familiar with, so maybe you are too, and I googled some nice photos for us. The one on the left here is a standard buttress. The ones on the right are called flying buttresses because they make an archway and don't touch the ground, they fly. But the idea is the same. They hold up a wall. They support a wall. They're strong, sturdy, well-built, well-designed, but the entire purpose is to hold up something else, to support something else. And Paul says that's what the church does. We order ourselves rightly. We conduct ourselves with integrity so that we can be an effective pillar and buttress of the gospel. Church, that is what's at stake. That's why Paul is writing about all the things that he's writing about. That's why Paul cares about all the things that he's writing about. Because the gospel is on the line. When we're structured biblically, when we're living faithfully, then we can confess and proclaim and hold up the gospel as we ought to. And then it's as if Paul can't help himself. After he describes our function as a pillar and buttress of the gospel, he then confesses the gospel. Verse 16, he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Again, the mystery of godliness just being another way of saying what has now been revealed in the gospel through the coming of Christ. Mysteries are hidden, Mysteries contain something concealed, but now through Christ, the truth of God has been made known. And then he quotes six lines from what most scholars believe are lyrics from an ancient Christian hymn or song. You see them there in the rest of verse 16. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness that we confess. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And these six lines capture so much as it relates to the truth of the gospel. First, Christ was manifested in the flesh. This, of course, refers to everything we just celebrated at Christmas. That God has come amongst us to dwell amongst humanity. He isn't some distant, far-off deity He has drawn near, he has taken on flesh even in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And having taken on flesh and having lived a human life, he lived a perfect life of love and righteousness. You see, you and I living in the flesh, we fail regularly to be who God made us to be. But Jesus, the God-man, succeeded where we failed and he lived a perfectly righteous, perfectly loving life. The second line then mentions that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. And this likely refers to his resurrection. So after living the life that you and I should have lived, Jesus died the death that we deserved, suffering the punishment for our sin, But praise be to God, he was then vindicated by the Spirit through his resurrection. Jesus' crucified flesh was renewed and resurrected by the Spirit, vindicating him. That he is who he said he was. The Son of God, the promised Messiah. And then this third line, he was seen by angels. This likely also refers to the events immediately preceding or proceeding his Death when he was resurrected, you remember the angels were present at his empty tomb, but also 40 days after his resurrection when he ascended triumphant to heaven, to the heavenly realms where the angels live. So, right there in just those first three lines, we have the core of the gospel the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus' church. This is the good news. This is the gospel that transforms lives. This is the truth that we are meant to be a pillar and buttress for. And apart from robust, committed involvement with a local church, we cannot hold up the gospel like we were meant to. Let me say that again. Apart from robust, committed involvement with a local church, we cannot hold up this gospel like we were meant to. So Christian, we've got to ask ourselves, what are the next steps God would have you take to become more involved, to more fully play your part within a local assembly? Maybe it's reprioritizing your schedule so that you can more consistently gather and assemble for corporate worship. Maybe it's taking the risk of pursuing spiritual family through a life group. Maybe it's becoming not just an attender, not just a consumer at church, but a committed member and a contributor through serving and giving and building relationships. What is it for you that God is calling you to take the next step and becoming more fully involved in what he has for you amongst his family? Whatever it may be, we would love to help you take those steps. So that QR code on the seat backs in front of you, you can fill out a form, let us know who you are, how we can help you move forward. Or you can visit us at the connect desk in the lobby, talk to somebody you already know who is a member or is in leadership. The church is a spiritual family, meant for deep relationships, meant for active involvement, meant for a healthy culture, so that we can hold up the gospel, so that we can be a pillar and buttress for the truth. For the sake of the nations and our neighborhood. And if you are not a Christian yet, if you have not yet started following Jesus, how can you respond to all of this? Well, again, think of those last lines in verse 16 of that song that Paul quoted. He says, This is the gospel that we confess. God came in the flesh through Jesus. He was sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He was vindicated, raised in triumph. This is the gospel that was then preached among the nations. And then Paul says in that fifth line that it was believed on in the world. Jesus was believed on in the world. If you haven't started following Jesus yet, you got to know that is his required response for us. For all of us who are broken, for all of us who are needy, for all of us who are shame covered, he is calling us to believe in Jesus, to trust in him. We cannot earn our salvation. Hear me, we cannot earn our salvation through being super generous, through acting with good morals, through following some religious code. None of it works. We cannot earn our salvation but we can receive our salvation. We can receive Christ through faith, putting your trust in the gospel, believing in Jesus. And we would love for you to start following him with us as a spiritual family, because that's who we are, holding up the gospel as a pillar and buttress of truth. I pray it would be so for you and for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.